0: Welcome back to series one, episode six of the Thrive Physio Podcast with me, Matt McDermott.
1: And me, Liam Bill. This week we welcome John Goodwin, who is the head of Academy Sports Science at Fulham Football Club. John answers all of our usual key questions and this leads us into a good chat around research in sport and what makes a healthy physio sport science relationship. Without further ado, we'll jump straight into the chat with John. Okay, it gives a great pleasure to welcome John Goodwin to the Fry Physio podcast this morning. Thanks for coming on, John.
2: Thank you. Uh,
1: the reason we're really excited to get John on is because of his great experience in the various uh, areas that we focus on in the podcast. So John's worked as an SNC coach. He's got great experience in academia um, and then he's worked in Saudi Arabia helping set up a sporting institute and now currently in academy football. Uh, it's massively underselling your experience, John. So uh, I'll let you talk for it a little bit more.
2: Yeah. uh Yeah. Underselling experience only comes from being old, Liam. So that's the <laughs> the reason lists get long is just you hang around for long enough, and that's what it ends up with. Uh, my background: uh, undergrad in sports rehab. That's where I started a long, long, long time ago, ninety-five, and uh, after that, basically stayed on as a postgrad at St Mary's University where I'd done my undergrad in rehab, eventually ticked off a uh, master's in biomedical engineering, mostly just because I was wandering around not really knowing what to do, so I was <laughs> teaching some biomechanics, uh, yeah, master's in biomedical engineering and then gradually everything turned towards coaching. I was coaching from when I was on my undergrad, that all started as track and field. Um, being a sprints coach you gradually get asked to do some other stuff to help some people from different sports so a rugby player comes along and wants to get faster or a football player comes along and wants to get faster and then you start to realize that it's not enough just to do the stuff on the track you need to do the stuff on the other side and you've got no other support so you end up becoming a strength conditioning coach alongside doing your track coaching Uh, and then my S&C all sort of spanned off from there so then after a few years of probably some like 2000 to 2005 teaching undergrad sports science I started to build an undergrad in strength conditioning Um, that started in 2007 Um, then we validated a master's degree in strength conditioning in 2011 so then a long spell of my career was delivering those programs as program director for undergrad and master's programs and then alongside all of that just spending my real passion was coaching so I kind of got because I didn't really know what I wanted to do I got stuck I got stuck in academia when I actually was a coach as I felt I felt as a coach so ended up racking up often 20-30 hours of contact coaching a week on top of a full-time Lecturing job which got pretty painful, sort of doing a 60 plus regularly, a 60 plus hour week because I yeah, really just I wanted to coaching um, and also wanted to prove to all the coaches because the EIS were based at St. Mary's. Okay, I just had this constant urge to prove that I was a coach, not an academic, and that yeah. just meant the, the avenue I had to do that was just to rack up hours. Um, so then ended up in lots of different. We were running a TAS coaching program out of St. Mary's, doing lots of little consultancy elements of coaching, working with a few teams dotted around here and there. Um, spent three years doing S&C for the Welsh women's lacrosse team. It's probably my favorite bit of coaching. Nice. Uh, and then eventually someone gave me an opportunity to get out of academia. And jump sideways into a full sport job, which was what actually what happened at Saudi. That's when I ended up after nineteen years at St Mary's, deciding to jump ship and get into sport properly. Amazing.
1: On the on the Saudi one, quickly, there's sort of a lot. Obviously, the the working abroad route is is quite an open one, uh, quite an open option for for physios and SNCs alike. How? how did you find it so how how was it preparing to make that jump aboard? and was it something that you you found found useful did you regret it how how did it go mm. T-
2: terrifying beforehand yeah i I'd spent a long time trying to persuade my wife to go and live an expat life um just because it made more opportunities for me to try and get roles in sport mm. um she never wanted to leave the country she happened to be totally sick of teaching at the point the job offer in Saudi came up. So of yeah. all the places she decided, it could have been America, it could have been Australia, it could have been anywhere. She decided to accept a role in Saudi Arabia. Um, so we took a really, it was a really scary leap, but that was the best family living experience we've ever had. And in the end that changed my whole life perspective actually, cause it made me realize what was actually really important to me was, what life we were able to live together as a as a family and uh, we really enjoyed expat life had a fantastic experience in the working environment because it's so different to here so it just came with a whole host of new challenges new personalities um how did you find that was it was it a challenge or was it actually quite a quite a
1: welcome thing adjusting to a a different working culture
2: Yeah, really loved it. Um, I I like environments where I'm having to work things out as I go. I prefer that to going into environments where the system's really well embedded and actually it's all about perfecting your execution. That's much less appealing to me than environments that are a bit chaotic, not quite running as they should. Things need to be moved, progressed things are under-resourced and you're having to solve problems about how to make things work with your limited resource like those are much more engaging environments for me rather than the I guess what some of elite sport is like which is okay you're well funded programs are well embedded you're trying to eke a tiny bit more out the system that that doesn't necessarily inspire me as much I like spaces where there's lots to do and there's big things to move. yeah I feel like
1: I feel like you learn more in those situations as well because you've got to get more out of yourself. You've got to get more out of other things that you then hone what's good, what's right, what you've done well, what you haven't. You've got a chance to do that and then take that into, like you say, hopefully later on, those elite environments where you've got your couple of things that you might, okay, I can put that in here when actually there's not too much to do. I feel like those environments are really good to pick those things up. Um, Yeah. Yeah, and then I guess that links nicely, brings you back into returning returning to london and working in academy football
2: yeah so that was just uh one of the issues with saudi was it was very difficult to make progress because there's a there's a real consultancy culture okay. lots and lots of money being spent on consultants and there's real uh unsureness about what steps people should take so whilst there's lots of money available, there's not a willingness to put that money on the line and spend it on something that people in that environment haven't seen before, aren't 100% sure they trust you that it works, Um, have some consultants who want to go back through iterative planning processes again because that's what makes their work, that's what creates their income, is lots and lots of plannings of review and. Plan again and review and plan again. Yeah. Do and not finish, not get over the line. And at the end of my three-year contract there, I was just a little bit too frustrated with not being able to get things over the line. Um, and then the opportunity came up at Fulham. And actually, prior to prior to going to Saudi for the ten years prior, getting into the role I'm in now in an in an academy is the job I was trying to get. Yeah. Um, because it's an environment where you're reasonably resourced, not completely resourced, but reasonably resourced. And you have lots of young athletes who are desperately seeking some sort of progressive structure that you can put a mark on. Um, Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah yeah definitely it's uh yeah i I love i love the working working in that environment it's like you say it's um we're we're fairly well resourced and um it's uh it just gives a great opportunity to to have an impact on on athletes of a young age going forward um i think there's a lot of people might see it as maybe a little bit of a, a jumping step academy sport sometimes obviously matt and i are both in it and it's a big big part of this this podcast and what we're doing is try and get people more used to that environment and what it's like but it's a great environment to learn and thrive in so it's um yeah I'm glad I'm glad we've got that
2: we've got that bit in there from you um I'm, I'm really unsure there's there's things that first team football that do appeal to me that yeah. aspects of what you would want to achieve there appeal to me but I really don't know I'm unsure at the moment if it's ever enough to take me away from what feels like a much more engaging developmental environment that you're trying to pursue and a pathway that is all under your control, if you like, Mm. um, all the way through an Academy structure, whether, whether first team football could ever trump what, what's on offer at Academy. It's actually the same conversation that I spent years having with strength conditioning coaches in that setting where personal training was the, the dirty younger sibling or personal training was the stepping stone. Get your experience over here, and then I want to work with athletes. Yeah, for lots of people it's like, out with academy, get your experience in the academy, and then I'll get to work with football. And that journey just never made sense to me because, yeah, academy football is a place where you can have so much impact, and personal training actually is an environment where you can really impact. Ch- totally change transform lots of people's lives mm. and that's often much more rewarding than working with an elite athlete who might be a self-absorbed totally blinkered person who's only caring about their not you know, not all like that but yeah that's, o- that's often the you know what what you're working with and um I don't, people downplay it. and the problem is to some extent it's when the money's in the wrong place it's not necessarily the the wrong place but um, yeah it's a shame there aren't always opportunities for people that want to have a career that progresses and they want to make money that the opportunities just aren't as good at academy as they are uh, at first team level and maybe that's some of the driver
1: yeah we feel we feel quite strongly on that on that side of things that i think we spoke about it before in the department haven't we and and matt and i get to speak about it to to students when we go in the the differences and obviously the the money is one but you yeah you do wish that there was real support of specialist roles working with that pediatric population because that is a real specialism and it's it's one that people can go so far in but yeah like you say quite often it's the money's not there and it's not feasible for these people to hang around in the jobs and progress but like you say, not just the money. the The whole difference is uh, we, we talk about it all the time, don't we, Matt? We get questions about it from students all the time, about the differences, and and the differences are huge in in so many ways between academy and first team, and they're not all they're not all positive towards that first team end by any means. So definitely yeah, not. Yeah.
0: Another fantastic career pathway to hear about as well. There and um, so almost um, career progressions by sort of necessity or, or problem solving. So you say at, at that point of uh, sprint coaching, uh, sort of realising that lack of access to S&C, there's two options at that point. One is to sort of continue with a, an awareness that you, you wouldn't be able to provide the service that, that you know is evidence-based, that you know is best for athletes. And many people would have been quite content uh, to continue with that and option number two, obviously, is to pursue the s career yourself and then combine the two elements uh, as you did and go on to develop the, uh, the undergrad postgrad programmes at, at St. Mary's. And even more interesting to hear about the, the adventure and the experience in, in Saudi Arabia. So, uh, f- f- fantastic. It, it always fascinates me and always really pleased when uh, when guests share such, a, such decorated careers. Um, as, as Liam said as well, we've got a few key questions. Uh, we ask all our, all our guests um, just to get their insights and hopefully help our listeners who are just starting out on that pathway. First of those is looking if you're happy to share one key recommendation or tip for getting a job in sport.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think my hobby horse is always for, that people be engaged. And uh, everything else that often people talk about—go and get lots of experience, study hard, get a good degree—you know—all all, all those sorts of topics—all for me stem from being engaged. But the other thing that being engaged—and and things like networking, like all, all of that stuff—stems from being engaged with what it is you're really interested in and what you think you want to become. So, I guess my, my lived experience of that was where I, where I started as, as an undergrad. I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but the one thing that I did know is I was really engaged with my athletics. And I was really engaged with wanting to have more community around my athletics. And where that led me was that during my undergrad, and then during my time as a postgrad student, and also as a early days lecturer, I spent an extended period of time, not just coaching to the athletic club, but running university athletics out of St Mary's. And we went from a club that used to send about five people to the national university athletics championships to a club that used to send about forty or fifty people, because. I was just really engaged with, I was excited about getting everyone to do athletics. And I would pull in, I was coaching more, I was keeping people engaged with athletics who would have dropped out university. I was pulling people into athletics from other sports that hadn't really thought about doing athletics before. Um, I was being part of recruiting people to the university to try and bolster the athletics team, try and persuade people to come to St. Mary's. Uh, like, I just wanted to be involved and in achieving something. And where that leads you is that you get good at the things that you're doing. You meet lots of people. You have conversations where you're passionate about the things you're talking about with people. And they see that in you. And that causes them to look at you differently. And that's how opportunities... I had no idea what my direction was going to be. But opportunities arise... Because the people you've crossed paths with and people that you've been engaged around see your energy, see your passion, see that you really want to make things better, and that appeals to them. And then opportunities crop up. So I think a a little bit too often, people think, Well, I've, I've done my degree. Why isn't this happening for me now? Why am I not getting these opportunities? But those people have never immersed themselves in the culture they want to get into they hardly know anybody in the culture they want to get into because they haven't immersed themselves in it so they finish an undergrad degree they've never been to a conference they've never had online conversations with people that publish literature they're interested in or coaches that inspire them or um, they haven't been involved with sport programs as volunteers or they wait till they finish their undergrad program and then go right now i need to get some experience whereas the ones who are really energized and passionate and engaged they're from year one of their undergrad like when i was as i was teaching i watched the really passionate students in their first year they were desperately looking for places they could put their stuff into practice and they were rubbish like they were first year undergrads they had no clue but they just wanted to be around the environment and they wanted to be around people that were experienced in the environment. And it's that engagement that led to them later getting opportunities that felt like, oh yeah, you just got lucky. Or yeah, you just happened to know the right person. There's, there's reasons they got lucky. There's reasons they met the right person.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree yeah. um, And you know, on, on that engagement point. It's development, it's pushing services forward, it's proactivity, and as you say, that, that shows passion. And at the time of you doing that in your example, you're not doing that because you want to get a job, you're not doing that because you want to build relationships. Those are additional benefits that help develop the career later. At the point yeah. of doing it, you're doing it because you've got a general passion to be involved and, and that's yeah. really clear for potential yeah. employers. Um so yeah. yeah. That
2: authenticity is massive.
0: And you, you, you can't fake it. It's impossible yeah. to fake it. Yeah. Um, I say that those that do it in year one are doing it completely genuinely. Those doing it in year three or post-grad are thinking, oh gosh, it's near the end of the degree. Got to, got to get a job sorted out here. What, what's the next step? And I'm almost doing it reactively, um, which, is, which, is, which is commonplace, uh, unfortunately, but it's, 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 it's not the ideal route yeah. to, to sort of go now. Yeah, and it's, and
1: it's, it's nice to hear that
2: sorry John go on I was gonna say it's that that authenticity that makes resonate for me the the comment that it, it isn't who you know it's who knows you it's the people that know what you're about that create the opportunities for you not the people that you know that you've managed to introduce yourself to
0: Um. Next question is looking uh, back. This can uh, be sort of at an, an, any level of uh, student study, but what one piece of advice would you give yourself as a student
2: uh, to meditate? Um, I f- I found mindfulness mindfulness very very late, um, not until my late 30s and the ability to progressively develop skills around separating myself from my anxieties is a a massive driver and a lesson i think it's now something i'm desperately trying to work out for my own health but if i had had those tools from a very early age tools that i now try to give start giving my children very early Um, I think I could have saved myself an awful lot of heartache and been a lot more productive en route. Um, But the the challenge there is that you're only ready to learn something when you're ready to learn it. And maybe those lessons could have come my way when I was young and I just didn't see them or pay attention to them or or realise they were there. Um, Because I just wasn't ready to learn them. But, yeah, taking some sort of mindfulness or meditative process seriously from a young age i think is um a really valuable one for people
0: okay so the final key question we have for you today john is surrounding uh, the literature and if you're happy to give our listeners one key piece of research or a journal paper that's really resonated with you and your career what would it be and why
2: can I dodge the question? Ew. Because there, there, there isn't any. Is there, is there is the answer to that question? Uh, I like that. I like that. There definitely isn't one piece. Um, there have probably been a couple of research pieces that have uh, been part of my career journey. So. Peter Wayand as a researcher was responsible for some of the sprint-based literature that led to some of the ideas I presented when I was sort of doing conference circuits 10 years ago. Um, it was all based around analysis of sprint mechanics of which Peter Wayand's work at that point was quite influential, but uh, I wouldn't say as a practitioner more broadly, that resonates with me. And I think the, some of the problems with research literature is they either describe generalities, particularly in my field of mechanic, mechanics where I'm interested, they describe generalities of how physics functions and it gets masked as a research question on a topic, but in the end, it just describes fundamental physics uh, at the Newtonian level in most cases. Or things tend to try and ask questions in a linear way about things that are very nonlinear systems. So it's something where the sports science literature, for example, is heavily caught up and has a, a big challenge at the moment. Is in the way that for almost the entirety of our sort of research history around physical function, and sports science, it's it's been a very linear approach, treated humans as humans. And looked for fundamental things that underlie everybody responding in the same way to certain things for example and that's okay when you're in the early stages of research like if you're in the 1950s asking those sorts of questions and find those sorts of answers that's entirely appropriate but where we are now is we're really stuck in churning out lots and lots of research which isn't really telling us the answers to the right questions because we're doing research designs that are just straightforward to do i.e. take a group of people do something to them and see what happens to the group whereas that does not tell me now that i you know we're in an academy setting with a 17 year old player and i need to know what to do with this player and those those research designs tend not to answer that question very well at all and even send us in completely the wrong direction so we'll have you know do this training intervention, does it transfer and improve performance? Well, on average, for that cohort of 20 athletes that did that in the study, on average, no, it didn't. But for this athlete here who has very specific constraints, very specific limiting factors on their performance, that training intervention precisely will work. So now we've got this dilemma where we want to call ourselves evidence-based practitioners, but the research study said this doesn't work when the reality for this player is that it will work. And, I, and I'm saying it will, I don't know, but it could well work. Um, yeah, so I, I don't, and, that, and that's why I don't end up with much in the way of research that resonates with the work I'm trying to do on a daily basis, because we need a bit of a paradigm shift to some extent in some of the sports science literature that we're producing.
0: I think the, the exact opposite of that is unfortunately quite prevalent in, in the sporting environment and it's that sort of um, idea of cherry-picking literature to confirm your web practice or or your bias, which is, is certainly not there not what it's there for, but due to the abundance of literature out there, it is quite easy to select those papers that, that support the direction that you want to go for the pure purpose of of backing it up and, and, and no other benefit whatsoever. Um, very quickly and very harshly, you commented on a sort of a paradigm shift and a sort of different direction uh, for, for the profession moving forwards. Really, really harsh question, but what, what direction do you think uh, it, it should be going in? What, what way do you think it should be going in? Uh,
2: we need to be trying to understand how we answer questions around an individual athlete's needs so some of that if, if, if you look at what what a broader set of sports science literature might do which enables it to be transferable is moving towards characterising the, the breadth of ways in which variables could interact to cause something to work or not work for example um so I don't I don't need to know whether squats make you faster. I need to know progressively in more and more complex ways what interacts what interacting set of states enable squats to be productive as a tool and what set of pre existing constraints or or situation would cause a squat to be not that productive causing me to change what i do and that you know one of the reasons we're slow in getting to answering those sorts of questions is that that's difficult to do and lots and lots and lots of our research is is, is carried out in environments where like the researchers are not not that far along their career and they're trying to get their head around doing fundamental designs that they can sort of get their head around and manage. It's it's the similar it's a similar problem why people talk about, well, why don't we have a lot of research on on programming? And it's because it's difficult to do. And even when you get to the end of it, it hasn't actually given you the answer. It's told you what's happened with these subjects, with their constraints, but it hasn't really unpicked the answer about the complexities of what caused that thing to work or not. For different people within the group.
0: I guess as well like a, a, an issue like you said about not just the the, the ways and the, the the types of questions that are being asked is also a, also a big contributor factor is that in, in academia in particular there's an expectation that you will churn out this many papers in this many years so in order to facilitate that you'll pick the easier design methods, you'll pick the ones that are, are, are easier to, to complete, and it just ends up flooding the, uh, the, the literature base with an abundance of these papers, ra- ra- rather than targeting the issue. Um, and it's, it's, it's not the way to look at it, because you, lo- you lose interest, you lose passion, you're, you're going through this research process just, just to go through the research process, then add to that those just starting out in their career that have familiarised themselves with, with research methods to, to, to begin with, that, that, that's where a lot of the issue, issue stems from. Um, th- thanks for, for sharing the insights on the, on the key questions um, and uh, I'm going to pass over to, to Liam to, to delve into a few more uh, physio, sports, uh, s type questions mm-hmm. about the, the interaction between the two roles.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, so I think there's a lot of there's a lot of misconceptions potentially over the S&C physio relationship. It's a, it's usually a nice contentious one. I think um, I think we're mo- moving away from that definitely in sport. From what people are seeing, that especially obviously we're lucky enough to work together, and the relationship in the department is is a strong one, I believe. And everywhere I've worked at, it's been like that. Some places it may be different. There might be some conflict in SNC and physio, but we just wanted to sort of ask a few questions about your experience with physios as an SNC. Um, I suppose the main one is: is there any key skills you've noticed in the good physios you've worked with um, over the years as an SNC?
2: Yeah, um, I guess I, I'm similar to you that my narrative is all positive. Um, but I definitely hear. I, I had a phone conversation with a, a sort of a peer a week or two ago, and they said, "Oh, you know, they're were, they were basically asking for some advice. If I had any reflections on how do you deal with this situation in a in an interaction between a medical team, and I'm like, I, don't, I, don't, I can only tell you the way my interactions work. I can't speak to how you fix that problem because I've never just never experienced that problem. Mm. But the the qualities that for me I'm most content when physios come with is one, a desire to be a trusted friend. And the reason I say a trusted friend is because I need to be able to have a conversation with physios where people aren't touchy about challenging each other, about being content. being a friend isn't the right avenue for everybody to achieve that outcome, but it's 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 how it works for me is that I like to feel like we're sufficiently aligned as as people that if I say I think you've just said something that's bollocks, you can quite happily take that and laugh it off and take it as it is, which is uh it doesn't mean I devalue you, it doesn't mean I don't trust your knowledge, it doesn't mean anything negative just means I don't agree with that thing you just said it's just the sentence doesn't I don't agree with that sentence so let's work out why we don't agree with it each other's sentences Um, too often if people don't have those relationships there's it's just a constant niggle I imagine that every time someone disagrees this is chipping away at what I think you think of me as a person And, and some of that's about the relationship. Some of that's about the in- actual individuals and their own sense of self and security and Definitely. those things, but that, that, that relationship's fundamental. And then the other one is I really want a physio who knows shit that I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't necessarily need a physio who wants to know all the same things that I know. I want to be able to ask them all of the questions that I can't answer. Yeah. So, um, what, whatever stage we're at in somebody getting better, I don't feel like I necessarily have a good sense of what state a tissue's in and what it can tolerate. I want to feel confident that I can ask someone who won't bullshit, won't give me an answer when they don't know, but will give their best critical judgment about what state that thing's in and what we can do to it. Um, Absolutely.
1: Would you say that's where you say that's where the sort of line probably is between S and C and physio around tissue healing and that side of things? Would you Would you say that's where that sort of line is? Is there any other sort?
2: Of- yeah. No. I think that's I think that's fair. That in in reality, I would say in the process, in the wider process, I would say I have no boundaries, or I want to create an environment where there are no boundaries, where. At any stage from fully healthy to day one post an injury like these are people that are entirely intertwined in planning a process together and they take shared responsibility and they both accept each other's expertise in what that can contribute Um, and yes some of the some of the I guess boundary if you want to find it is in that there's this huge overlap in your expertise in the middle but as yeah. you get further and further then there's these peripheries where you answer each other's questions and help each other out um and also the other boundary is in well, who does the buck stop with that's the other boundary for me like somebody has to be the person who is technically responsible for what's happening with this case yeah and and i'm, and I'm happy for that to move based on the nature of the relationship mm-hmm. So. For me personally, that buck stop is when the player's training with their peers, or not training with their peers, and it's a simple line to demarcate for me, yeah. and it's not murky. But for other people, it's at different. If you're talking about a rehab process, for other people, it's at different stages. Slightly before that, that say an S and C, you know that line of, of who's technically managing that case would would stop um yeah i think that's yeah <clears throat> i think that's that's all generally the la- the last
1: couple of questions is a it's a good summary of what would make a, a good working relationship like you say you've, you've got your honest friend there you, you're able to constructively criticize and be honest without ruining any relationships or because I mean, you've got to put the athlete in the middle of that. And if, if you're not getting on, that athlete's not progressing well enough. Like I say, it goes back to our original point at the start. I think the experiences I've certainly had in sport and that most people are now, I think people are understanding that. But it is important for students going in, they might have they might be in their little physio bubble. Um, they might come to work with s and and start with, might be thinking, okay, well, this is my job and that's your job. And the reality of it, and I'm glad it's sort all of come out of conversation, is that's not the case. There are specialisms you have your experience we, we have our experience but mostly that should be a, a real working relationship so and definitely and that, that,
2: that bears out in some of the way like my brain works in pictures I, yeah and I, I need to be able to see processes as a visual model to make them make sense for me and my visual model of how sscs and physios work together is you know sort of an over is an overlapping wedge and there might be shifts in the amount of contribution people have to a particular conversation but everyone's in the conversation all of the time what you common what you often see in visual representations in some of the literature is that thing represented as a venn diagram that relationship so we have two spheres that overlap and for me that that doesn't characterize the relationship in the right in the right way i don't want i don't want me to be responsible for all of this stuff, you to be responsible for all this stuff, and that there's some stuff where we cross, that that isn't a partnership. thats I don't, I don't really know what that, what that is. And I understand yeah. why people end up at a Venn diagram, but it just doesn't work for me in my mind in terms of characterising the way we're always, all of the time for an athlete, both putting our expertise into the process of trying to get them to be better athletes protect them from injuries as far as we can bring them back for injuries wherever that's unfortunately necessary. Um, it, it's, 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 you know, an organization puts two people in there with sets of expertise. If we're not using those, both those expertise to their fullest, all of the time we are failing our athletes. Yeah. And if, if, if we see it, a Venn diagram for me says, well, we overlap in our practice and have really tight conversations Sometimes, not yeah. we have over we have tight conversations and overlap our practice in everything we do, which is what I think it should be.
1: Yeah, no, I like I like that like that image. Like you say, you might get the Venn diagram more often, but the wedge image definitely uh, definitely resonates more. I, yeah, I like, that's a good good one to take away. I think. I guess the, the final question, and it kind of works with that, is: Are there any areas that you think physio wise? should know a little bit more about in terms of s and c in your experience of yeah. working with any physios or just that you know physio degree teaches this s obviously teaches this there is a big crossover as we've as we've discussed is there any particular area that you think physios would be even if it's for someone to go and be proactive and go away and learn more about something yeah. that you would typically have as an s and probably a better way of framing that
2: yeah um i guess the the, the knowledge that underpins this is quite general so it, it's unfortunately difficult for me to specify yeah it's and, and actually if you're engaged with being good it is the sort of knowledge that comes um yeah. but what for, for me what i need uh, a physio to help me do particularly when it relates to the rehab process is that like rehab is training Like the human body is the human body and getting it to progress and adapt is getting it to progress and adapt whatever state it's in. So everything is always training, but to enable us to reach back into a rehab process, it's the start end where I have the least expertise and where I need to be able to ask the question, what can they what can they do so this is what i talk about with our with our SC guys like we, we need to be able to think about all the avenues all the threads all the trajectories of training that somebody needs to have in a in their full training program and if i trace those back and keep asking the question what can they do what can they do what can they do how good are we at finding a start point for each of those trajectories that enable me to be training Fully as I'm able to be training at the point we're at the very earliest stage of rehab. What's the most complete training program we are able to achieve? And once I've built with a physio the most complete training program the athlete can do at day one of rehab, now we've got a journey that we can plan a, a trajectory for that gets us yes. to an end point, which is them performing better than they were before they came out of in out with an injury. Um, so. Yeah, I I really want someone who has a really good grasp of how the body functions, how arranging the body in different ways functions, how different segments of the body might relate to imposing stress on each other. If I do an exercise over here, is it gonna impose stress on the injury over here? Like being able to work out those things. So maybe this isn't, this is again, even right back at this end, this is shared knowledge, not necessarily all the physio's knowledge. Yeah. But yeah, can we, can we get back to really boiling the down, answering the question, what can they do now so that we're not delivering a rehab programme that rehabs the injury and maybe bolts on a couple of obvious extras that mm. might, you might call training, that, that we have as full a programme as we possibly can that is an actual training programme across the board that has endpoints at the other end um, that's it's the set of expertise that enable the physio to help us build that but I really want yeah. and then apart from obviously some really good diagnostic skills uh, <laughs> yeah. really good really good skills with managing the athlete from a psych perspective and engaging them with the process getting them through whatever stages they need to get through to be able to commit to their rehab um, yeah. building buy-in with athletes all of those things that they obviously should have
1: yeah I think you do have to go and seek that more than the other things that tend to get taught that is more of a specialism of getting into that sporting environment and getting into working with athletes rather than just patients because if you're working in NHS with a patient you you won't see an S&C and you can control their exercise program like you say you know they can do this and you can probably add on a couple of exercises that keep the patient ticking along but in terms of performance as a physio you definitely need that knowledge of okay what are these guys going to want to ask them to do at a really early stage can they do it can i get that in there
2: one of the, one of the things for me that gives some of some of the right toolbox as well is, is the same thing i've said forever to people to students in snc is that people people need to train like, you need to engage with the training process to feel some of what the things I'm talking about. Like you need to have done exercises and tried them and loaded them and been sore in places you weren't expecting to be sore the next day. It's like, why mm-hmm. did I do that exercise? And I hurt here now. Like you, you learn a lot of that by pondering just your own internal experience. And that's not to say that your internal experience will be the same as your athlete's. But it gets you to think deeply about some of those questions and ponder how things relate and interconnect, and and how adaptation works and how exercise modifications tweak either how easy it is to do something or how challenging. Um, So, like you can't, you can't, you definitely can't learn all of your lessons from training, but there's a lot of deep reflection that can happen that is available through training if if you're willing to pay attention to it. No, that's that's perfect i think
1: yeah i think that that brings us to a to a really nice nice end there i uh, appreciate your time this morning there's some welcome. some great bits in there and it's it's great to still get the to get the mdt view of things and how working relationships work well together um but yeah thank you very much for your time really appreciate yeah,
2: yeah. it you're welcome guys and good luck with this all as well
1: thank you very much okay.
2: Matt, another great episode,
1: really interesting journey from John there. What were your takes on that? Yeah,
0: Liam, it's uh, it's a cracking chat. I thoroughly enjoyed sort of getting a completely different uh, career pathway, but at the same time highlighting similar points and touching on our our core themes uh, from previous episodes. Particularly enjoyed the sort of um, S&C physio relationship in, in the sporting environment and how each of those professions can, can utilise that to, to get the best possible outcomes uh, for athletes, which is, which is something that, that we, we definitely missed um, uh, on, on our degree.
1: Yeah, it's great to have someone with John's experience to to share that with us. But at this stage, he obviously works with a lot of students as well throughout his career and, and really knows uh, how to get the best out of people's careers. So it's, it's great advice to follow. For those that want more from John, he is on Twitter at johnny underscore mechanic we're obviously on twitter facebook instagram as well at thrive p-e-s download like and subscribe to the podcast as well next week we welcome Mehmet Dem to talk FAI and hips
0: and we look forward to welcoming you back then